Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. We should talk about what we've learned over three or four episodes talking about um, millennial sex lives and their dating lives and their or lack ability of. to form intimate or lack of or their ability or inability to form intimate relationships. Do you have a nickname for today? For myself? A generational nickname? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we retire. We're retiring a bit. No, I, I think I'm I'm back to feeling like that, you know, I've been reading a few of these thought pieces of late about how like Gen X, there's a kind of cohort of Gen Xers who are just like, I refuse to subscribe to this whole idea. And I think that that is that's the thing I identify with. I, I think I referred to myself in the intro, uh, intro to last uh, last time's episode as a generation refuse Nick. And um, <laughs> so I think I'll stick with that this time around. <laughs> All right. Well, also just like saying refuse Nick. Yeah, that's pretty nice. <laughs> that's your new LinkedIn title. <laughs> oh, I'm going to add it to my profile after this. I love it. Um, I'm Adam Pierre now. I am a Generation X. I'm still wearing a flannel and uh, what cargo shorts? What did, <laughs> I don't remember what I don't remember what grunge for jeans from jeans. Yeah, like, right. but, but jeans you bought at like the Army Surplus or the Goodwill or something. Oh, Surplus big time or thrift? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. couldn't actually go and buy new jeans. That is gross. No. No, that don't let the man also, sell you jeans. Let the man sell the other man the jeans and then buy the jeans from that guy after he dies. Yes. Yeah. But also, I feel like, especially like early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, is the introduction of expensive jeans. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so I think there was also a little bit of a resistance to that of like, why why am I paying at the time $50 for a pair of jeans for a seven-year-old? <laughs> I remember my mother oh, saying that. I still stand by that. Guess. Yes. yes. <laughs> still stand by that. That's yes. insane. $8. Nothing over $8 for my kids. It's good. It's a good price limit to set. It allows you to carry on the tradition of like, here's 10 bucks. Don't spend it all in one place. <laughs> I expect change. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that doesn't even get you out of the house. No. Though I remember when five bucks would. Five bucks would get you like... A ticket to a matinee and a soda. Yeah, not anymore. Kidding yeah. me? Ten bucks doesn't even pay for the popcorn. Nope. No, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. But yes, flannel, jeans, boots, concert tees. The things that basically that Gen Z are wearing now, but they buy it new from the mall. Or probably not the mall. Malls are dead. But where do they shop? You have Gen Z. Urban Gen Outfitters is still around <laughs> and recycling all the things I bought at Urban Outfitters in the late 90s. It's pretty, it's go. pretty wild. My daughter goes and comes back and she had a sublime t-shirt. And I was like, do you know that that's a band? And she was like, no, I don't care. It's a cool t-shirt. And I'm like, do you want to hear it? And she's like, not really. <laughs> All right. Style. Yeah. Style, yeah. baby. Yeah. So what do you think, Farah? what do you think we learned here talking to our guests about intimacy? Like what... 
I've been spinning on it a little bit because I, I listened to them out of order to see if I got a different story. And I think mm-hmm. I did a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my takeaway is probably, <sighs> I don't know. I don't know that it's different from what I kind of went in with, except, so here's what I think. I have a strong kind of ever was orientation of like, how different is any generation from the generation before really, you know, mm-hmm. especially around things like selecting your romantic partners and forming relationships and, you know, how many, <laughs> how many ways are there to have sex and, you know, so on and so forth. Like that has always been kind of my orientation. And I think some of that's reinforced that it turns out millennials haven't changed everything. They haven't fixed it. They haven't saved us from whatever, from from bad sexual behavior or from retrograde ideas about gender and status. So that felt like, yep, walked in thinking that, walked out feeling kind of affirmed with that. Yeah. Except that I also think that like there are these incremental changes and that things do get a little bit better over time and that there are groups of people within a cohort that really do put in the effort to try to do it a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to some degree that came up both in the Cindy conversation about the types of people who are opting in to her social sex revolution are people who are actively doing the work to engage in and portray sex in a less damaging way than porn. Mm-hmm. Right. And is trying to be more realistic and more welcoming and more open and more just healthier about sex as a perfectly normal human expression. And then talking to Kristen, I think the interesting thing was hearing her talk about her self identify as queer respondents and that they're not just identifying as non binary or something. They are actively trying to quote unquote queer their relationships and interrogate these dynamics. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, the kind of arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice problem is like, yes, but someone does the bending. It doesn't bend on its own. (laughs) And there's counter forces bending the opposite direction, trying to kind of reinforce. Pushing very hard. Yeah. Yeah. Pushing extremely hard. So you kind of have to let the youths off the hook a bit for their failure to fix everything and save us, which in the context of boomers, we called selling out mm-hmm. because the there's some, this other like huge, enormous set of forces that are like yanking on that arc to keep it going in the way it's been going. And then you've got these like <laughs> gender and critical studies majors querying their relationships, trying to have like open, honest dialogue with their partners about what they want sexually and romantically and how they want to order their relationships. And like, yeah, their project is going to take way longer to bend the arc than all the powers of states and capitalism and everything else that is like, no, 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 let's keep it this way. I don't think it's limited to gender studies no, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing the real trend. It's not, you're right. It's not totally bending the arc and it's not changing everything in real time, but it's undeniable that that interrogation of gender roles, the interrogation of relationship balance, the interrogation of like sort of relationship morality mm-hmm. is that's, that's shifting and being poked at in a way that going back to when I was single in the nineties, you know, and a, and a young adult 
it looks a lot different. It looks dramatically different than it did then. And I wonder when you, what you said about Cindy and make love, not porn. What I've been wondering is how much of that is the people millennials or whatever, whoever's participating, how much is that the people now have the will to do that work or the technology that enables that to be done at scale. Because I think there's always been, it's the same thing as like when we talked about the selfies, like my dad took selfies. He loved taking pictures of himself wherever he went. He took, had somebody take a picture of himself. It's just his thing that he did. I don't do that, but that's not like he was a boomer. That's not a millennial thing. That is the technology allowed him to have a forward facing phone. And so I wonder, is that millennials or is that, technology and how do we can can those things be separated well so i'm i don't know exactly that i think it's either uh, like the the project of queering <laughs> relationships has been going on uh, certainly decades probably much longer right? mm -hmm. you know like we were talking about if, if at some point doctors could sort of take women who are dissatisfied in their their marriages and diagnose them with hysteria and then give them hysterectomies or lobotomies or whatever else in order to treat them for their their hysteria then like people have been dissatisfied with the ordering of these relationships for a very long time so i think some of it is just like this is a long incremental inches at best project and that you never have as many people engaged in the project as you need to make it go faster. Now, here's where I do think technology plays a role, which I, I do think it helps accelerate it slightly. I, I think it certainly takes it out of fringe groups that nobody else has any visibility into and puts it in front of all of us. And then we have to think about what it means. Right. I think the reactionary response to these things that we see in the media of freaking out about sexting and ghosting and hooking up and phew, naked parties and whatever else is like <laughs> is is part of the apparatus of slowing the change it's trying to add a shock value to something that is not that shocking not that shocking i mean the here's where a, a book recommendation i might make is um the secret history of wonder woman by jill lapore which is a terrific book <laughs> and if you grew up loving wonder woman as i did linda carter linda carter asu sun devil Oh, really? All right. Oh, yeah. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, that book is so interesting, because Marsden, who's credited as the inventor of Wonder Woman, the creator of Wonder Woman, is in a polygamous relationship, <laughs> is part of a free love, you know, <laughs> Like if <laughs> probably part of a polycule, you know, whatever, oh, at God. like Princeton or Harvard or wherever the hell he was. And like, it's part of this first wave, I guess, first wave feminism kind of a move where people are saying like, we can queer these relationships. It's not the language that they're using. Right. And they're also interrogating ideas about power inside of heterosexual, primarily heterosexual relationships, though not exclusively. There are also queer relationships happening there. And so they're also like, <laughs> and this is where like the lasso of truth comes from. They're experimenting with bondage. <laughs> it's amazing. This book is so good. <laughs> tell you, it's, it's so good. And it's like, <laughs> like yeah. the other thing about like, him. Oh, is, yeah. 
I guess, yeah, yes. that all, that all the other reason, The other reason I'm obsessed with him is he's one of the fathers of the lie detector. Um, so he actually invented a polygraph machine. And again, lasso of truth. So it's, you know, the cuffs and the, the lasso is a little bit of the bondage thing, but also the lasso of truth is like, she's constantly like lassoing them around the chest, which is where you attach a polygraph machine. And so he had tried and failed to, he's, he's actually um, the reason that polygraphs are not admissible in court because he's the one who tried to test it as a way of um, submitting evidence. And the courts were like, this is not evidence. And the courts uh, have never changed their mind because it is not evidence of anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't get me started on how law <laughs> detectors are nonsense. But like, you know, he's like a psychologist lawyer and then starts writing comic books with his wives, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> so do you uh, think... Do you think I introduced the idea of technology today? In, but when we talked to uh, Katie and we talked about the apps, those also introduce an element. They amplify an element of promiscuity. You know, it's like go on all the days you can, swipe right, like just keep keep trying. But again, I don't think that's the people. I think people in their early twenties always dated more people and. This is just scale. You're just introducing a way for people to be exposed to more opportunities. Yeah, I, I think the the swiping kind of thing, the like shopping for a potential sexual or rom- romantic partner is sped up for sure. But we also mm-hmm. have like a long history of hiring people to introduce you to other people, you know, video dating, <laughs> Um, personals ads, you know, all of that kind of stuff in order to, to you know, and, and um, dating services, like matchmaking services that tried to scale what Yentas did and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's, again, not like new to humans to seek an intermediary to help you find a partner for whatever purpose. I, I think there are a couple of things that have changed. And, and one is, I think it's just become more socially acceptable to say, I am using these tools to have sex not necessarily to get married, right? I mean, I even remember like the the dating platforms and friends I knew who selected their dating, like preferred OkCupid to eHarmony because eHarmony kind of wants you to find your spiritual match. It was the monogamy meaning, It was tool, the monogamy yeah. app and it was kind of religiously oriented or at least it cared a lot about your religious identity. And then you know, okay, Cupid is like, however you want to use it, <laughs> whatever you want. And so people didn't want to be pressured into, I'm only going to meet people who are desperate to get married. Mm-hmm. I want to just date and see what's going on. And then you have all the like in the middles, the chemistries and the matches and whatever. I, I think the thing that um, <laughs> concerns people is the feeling that like, and I, you know, she, Katie had some good stories of people who had a different strategy for this, but like the ease with which you can reject someone based on a pick and a profile versus that you meet at a friend's house or at a conference or at a bar or, at, you know, the, the flag football team you joined or whatever means that people are potentially eliminating a lot of people that could be nice to know, if, if not hook up with or, or date or marry. And I think this is where the concern about all of us just like retreating from in-person social interaction is wrapped up in this. And like, are we spending too much of our lives online? Are our relationships 
predominantly now parasocial as opposed to actually social. And, you know, would we be better off going to mixers and doing speed dating rounds versus swiping through an app? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know the answer to that. I think part of my feeling about it is there's also just we're we're living in times that feel incredibly unstable and unsafe and we are awash in stories about people being you know endangered by other people mm-hmm. and i know in in some of the projects we work on young people in particular talk to us about having social anxiety about not feeling comfortable in groups and in crowds. And I do think like one of the stereotypes about Gen X is how we all traveled in packs. Like, you know, it's like, yeah. and everybody's dating everybody within their little circle and you like, you mix and match over time, but like, you're always in a group. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, I don't know. I think in high school, maybe, I mean, I went out with guy friends one-on-one, but they were not dates and that was explicit between us. <laughs> and so like dates, I mean, I could probably count like just just the two hands to count that the number of dates I went on in high school yeah instead it was a lot of group outings and you know there's a lot of that was how we did safety right if you were in a group it was safe right your girlfriends were with you as well as whatever guy you were hooking up with at the time and so like you weren't going to be left by your friends if the guy started behaving badly or the girl started behaving badly, you had other friends there to like check them. Right. And that was the method of safety. And now the method of safety is I'll just do this through this mediated experience of the apps. Mm-hmm. And I completely understand the impulse to protect yourself. On the other hand, I think it has some, <laughs> it has a distortion field that it casts off about, well, what happens when you finally do meet this person in person? And you know, I even think about things like the issue of the front-facing camera or cameras in general on smartphones. They all kind of fisheye. And so they make people feel like their noses all look big and their faces are all too wide. And so you have this like Instagram effect playing on young women and young men's sense of their what they look like and their sense of self because they're seeing this not true, not a reflection. They're seeing this right. distortion through the camera lens. And I think you have the same kind of thing where like, that's not what you look like on the app. That's not what you seemed like on the app, <laughs> you know? And so then you're like more anxiety, less time going out. And, like it's a disappointment to go meet the person in person because their online persona felt more attuned to you or felt more attractive or felt whatever. That's the downside risk. That's the thing everybody worries about. At the same time, I have plenty of friends who are happily married and met their partners on dating apps. So I think it's a how you use it kind of thing. So I don't know, I guess long way around answering your question is like, yeah, I think technology plays a role in scale. I think it also creates some weird incentives for some people. And I don't know that it's on the whole better than what we were doing before um, the apps. But on the other hand, if you're a shy person, if you've moved to a new place and you don't have a lot of friends here yet, if you're, you know, you have a history where you are, it would be traumatizing for you to just go out on a blind date, um, you don't feel safe with strangers, then I think there's a lot to be said for having access to these kinds of these kinds of tools. Um, and then the other part of it, I think, is if you're in a group where there's just not a lot of you, but you, you know, if you're tr- if a trans person 
And maybe you want to be with another trans person or you're non-binary. Mm-hmm. You want to be with another non-binary person. Or at least you want to find people that are open to relationships with someone who identifies that way. Then you like, <laughs> it's needle in a haystack time out in the world. But right. on these apps, you can find your community. And I think I think that's the other piece of it is like being able to find your tribe is actually still one of the net benefits, I think, of the internet and technology, even with a lot of the downsides of that. And obviously, like the flip side of that is filter bubbles and blah, blah, blah. But there are a lot of groups of people who would not be safe otherwise. Yeah, that's that's true. I wonder if what you said about the the representation of a person through the camera and through the way they curate their profile, I wonder if when we talk about true intimacy... The conversation a lot of times is, oh, the apps are making, you know, hookup culture. And so they're slowing down the the traditional journey of young people meeting each other at church or whatever the, the nostalgic lie is that we tell. <laughs> but I wonder if what the like what that profile and what the camera does is keeps people from knowing themselves. Like you curate yourself for the app, right? You do this for LinkedIn too. And you put your, whatever your best self is for that. Oh, it'd be so interesting to do research where you look at someone's profile on like each different app and compare what their personality is on each one, you know, a dating app, their professional, their Twitter, their Facebook, whatever else, um, based on who they think is going to see it. I wonder if the part of intimacy that is being retarded by the, by that is people knowing themselves and knowing what they like or what they want. Because they're like, I have to project this to get this thing I think I want or to get the swipe that I want or to get the first interaction that I'm trying to get. And and this is hypothesis. I have no idea if that's true. It's an interesting question. It makes me think about um, something from uh, Kristen's, Kristen D'Alessandro's book, uh, Intimate Inequalities, because there were these um, in kind of the section on gender and in particular thinking about heterosexual relationships. There was this phenomenon of like, young women talking, reflecting on past bad relationships or just past relationships. We don't have to say bad relationships and like actively kind of trying to draw a lesson from that relationship. Like, what did I learn about myself? What did I learn about him? What did I learn about what I want from relationships or sex or how I want to be treated or what I, whether I even really want to be married or any of these things? And so women are like straight women that she interviewed were like, kind of actively interrogating their relationships for lessons and mm-hmm. saw them that way, even to a degree that frankly bothered me because there were women who would talk about emotionally or even bordering on physically abusive relationships and saying, I stayed too long. and uh, But then again, I learned an important lesson and kind of going... God. <laughs> um, and and like taking it as a problem for them to solve next time around. So yeah. not really like assigning blame on the guy who was abusive, but instead saying like, hey, I'm the one like once he gave me the red, you know, once he put up the red flag, I probably should have bolted. I stayed too long, but I learned a valuable lesson. And so now hopefully I will not repeat that mistake again. I, I don't, I don't, I, like, I'm not a mental health professional. I have no idea whether that's the healthy response or not. But I'd like right. to dish a little blame on the abusive guy, if I may. Um, just a on smidge. Their just, a, yeah. just a little. The, the straight men, in contrast, when asked, like, did you learn anything from this relationship that didn't go that well, would go, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> like, no, I didn't learn anything from that. Like, <laughs> like I, I drew no that lessons sounds, from this. That sounds right. 
And their their beliefs about how they learn what they want from a relationship is instead this like distanced idea of like experience and age that like, I will magically get wiser as I get older, but I don't have to actually reflect on anything. And I don't have to lessons. acknowledge learning any lessons on the way. Yeah, yeah. They'll just yeah. suddenly congeal in my head. It's like yeah. that meme of the little boy who's like sitting at the desk and he's like turning the page in the textbook and going like this. Yeah. <laughs> just to like zoom it. Yeah. He turns the page and wafts it up, turns the page and wafts it up. Like, well, and, and so that that is like, I, you know, I, I think that there's that, that presentation of self problem is also like a what version of yourself did you get reflected back in the interaction? Right. And the thing I think about is like, I don't know, in my 20s, my, you know, early college era, like the things I did to try to get this dude to care about me <laughs> was yeah. insane. And I wasn't doing it on an app, but like I would change the way I dressed. I would change the way I did my hair. I would change the way I did my makeup. I would change the way I acted. I would change who I hung out with in order to like, is this anything? Like, uh, will this get you? To acknowledge right. my existence what's, what's more than every few minutes. <laughs> like, and even at one point, like looking back on it, I was like, oh my God, I don't even know if I was aware of it at the time, but I like wound up dressing like this guy sometimes, <laughs> like not consistently, but I suddenly had like clothes in my closet and I'm like looking back at old pictures going, why the hell am I wearing that? <laughs> like, for the, like, for the audience. To- that yeah, man for the audience, to get this man to see me because he was such a narcissist that maybe if I looked like him, he would notice me. <laughs> for the audience, that man was Michael Jackson. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just like the idea of you in the red, the red leather. I had that jacket. Of course you I did. I genuinely had that jacket. <laughs> did you really? That's a dope jacket. Yes. <laughs> and then like I that. lost it to my great dismay, even to this oh. day. Very I have another thought that pivots from that builds on what you're saying which is again for gen x growing up being in sorry the, still in laughing their, about michael jackson <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome uh for gen x being in their 20s and being you know figuring out the world and dating and everything like that like i'm i think i'm safe to say men were always given a pass to sow, sow their oats and to have that approach of like hunter prey towards dating mm. i think what the media does going back to your point about hysteria and the different treating of women's feelings and the profile picture and that whole thing. I think what the media gets focused in on is not just that like hookup culture is dangerous for society in some way, but it's like, Oh, women are a part a participant in this and have the same shopping approach and we don't like that. That makes us uncomfortable. That makes older generations uncomfortable because we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that shared publicly before. Not that women haven't felt it before, but it hasn't been socially acceptable except for Samantha and Sex in the City. And even that's like, ooh, so right. naughty. But I think that is an other, you know, there's a sexism component to it that is like, oh, I'm not sure if this is good for society for everybody to have an equal chance to reject people or accept them or choose on their own terms. Mm-hmm. You think that's part of this, what's it's oh, undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And you see it in like, I was looking through some of the um, some of the stories we had pulled in, in the in the research for this. And like, there's this 
piece from Fortune in July that's like the 40-year-old American millennial breaks a new record. A quarter of them have never married, signifying a shifting norm. And the key image is of a woman happily being licked on the cheek by her dog. God bless that woman, by the way. Yeah. Like everything's going great for her. Everything looks great. She looks like she has a nice place to live. Dog's super happy. She's having a great time. Everything's good. But like, no, the norms. We must protect the norms. norms. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Must protect the norms. And then the flip side of it is these like pieces about. So apparently, back in let's see, I don't even know exactly when this piece was written. Let me see. Uh, In 2021, Puritine began trending on Twitter because of a hashtag cancel porn movement that had taken off on TikTok. And so like, (laughs) so then you have headlines describing a sex recession and that Gen Z is sex negative as opposed to sex positive. And they are flip sides of the same coin, right? Like, how dare you reject marriage? How dare you reject sex? But also, don't be Samantha. Yes. And like perpetuating the item. Here's my favorite one. Here's and also be, be cis hetero only. Yes. Like, I mean, yes. the norms is really. <laughs> yes. How dare you, a heterosexual woman, present as anything other than a heterosexual How woman? dare you have some opinion? <laughs> yes. But it's, it's part of this is also the like, the idea, for example, that and uh for, for people who are interested in this kind of philosophical undertaking, I highly recommend subscribing to uh, ContraPoints' Patreon. It is one of the highlights of my life when, when she drops a new, a new tangent. But her most recent tangent is about, I think, misogyny. And one of the things that she talks about is the idea that men's uh, like, uh, source of sex, that they are visual, that they are turned on by what they see, and that women are turned on what they feel and like and emotionally what they feel (laughs) um and like this is insane like we're not different species (laughs) we both have eyes and brains with visual cortexes no no only men (laughs) only men women are all blind right but it also like reinforces this idea that like women's bodies are aesthetically pleasing objects to be ogled right yes and And men's bodies yeah, that's their purpose. And men's bodies are for some other thing. And they're like, not really not nice to look at. For work. And it's like, <laughs> I guess so. Yes. It's, it's for conquest and work. And like, and like the thing about Samantha is she liked looking at men. And, and the truth is <laughs> most straight women probably do like looking at men. Otherwise, Some men. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise not they wouldn't be men. straight. <laughs> like, <laughs> and but like but we like insist on this idea and it's just an, i mean it is literally insane if you are also going to stand over there in the evolutionary psychology camp and tell me about how human brains developed it makes literally no sense to say that somehow male and female brains branched and d- derived their sense of attraction from totally separate sensory experiences one isn't even fully sensory it's emotional <laughs> and the other one is purely sensory and you have to have functioning eyesight in order to experience experience <laughs> and men have no emotional connection that ever happens it's no, only never. Visual. never never yeah. no and like this is i think also though where the like people who are actively interrogating these things and i think even some of these gen zers that are saying cancel porn 
or, you know, being accused of being puritines <laughs> is like, you know, you hear more from each generation, you hear more from young men about their emotional lives and about their desire to be accepted for having emotional lives. And it's like this, in, again, incremental change. It's not everybody. And it kind of gets beaten out of you <laughs> over time. And because the society really wants to reinforce these stereotypes about what men are yeah. like and what women are like. But like, women can find men visually appealing and men can have emotions and not everybody wants to be in an opposite sex relationship and not everybody wants to spend a whole lot of time thinking about their presentation of gender all the time. It's exhausting. And yeah. so, I don't know. I, I think like this is where I think the technology can be really helpful, but the like reactionary backlash every time of like, oh, but what about the norms is, is the problem. Yes. It, it's the container that mm -hmm. everything gets stuffed into. And that, in this case, we're talking about intimacy. But I, I suspect when we could do a deep dive on the professional lives of millennials, then there's another set of norms that it's like, whoa, 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 you know, that you're, you're changing everything. It's like, they're not yep. really changing anything. They're just honestly assessing what is best for them and being and asking for it, or in some cases negotiating for it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that is the estimation of how much they are changing everything is wrapped up in two things. And one is the kind of what I constantly refer to as like the cult of the young. So the cult of the young is, in my view, like young people will change the world. And that's their job. You know, it's that that piece we quoted several episodes back about um, like, literally, that's what young people are for, Tom Friedman or whomever says. And like, <laughs> that, that idea is like, way too much pressure on people whose brains are not fully formed and who haven't had enough life experience to figure anything out and who yes. are living inside the container with the rest of us. Like, it's not their job to fix everything. It's all of our jobs to fix everything. So we're holding intention, the expectation that they're going to change everything. And then when they don't, but they didn't perfectly adhere to all the norms, we're mad at them about that too. Like, it's one it's, or the other. Either right. drop out or sell out. Those are your choices. Yes. Yeah, and do it exactly the way we want you to or thought you would. But yeah. it's it's also this, like um, you go to work, your boss comes to your desk and says, did you finish that assignment? And you go, what assignment? Oh, well, I assigned you with fixing everything. You did? <laughs> like boomers assigned, like specifically our friends from Millennials Rising, assigned millennials mm -hmm. with this role of they're going to fix everything. I don't know that they got a vote to say, yes, we volunteer. We will take this assignment on. It was just sort of projected on them. We had Tyler saying like, of course, that's what I said. I was 16. They interviewed me like, <laughs> right. shit, what, what, what am I supposed to say? You know, everybody thinks they're going to do that. Then you get into the world and you're like, actually, I don't want to fix everything. I just want to make my rent. I want to date. I yeah. want to have take advantage of American freedom and like live my life and work and figure out my career. I don't know that I systemically can change everything, even though there's 70 million of us that have all given this shared assignment, group assignment, as uh, as we've talked about. Yeah, I, I don't think there's but hidden in that is another piece of it, which is like it's talked about as if it's a shared assignment, but it's not like you're mm -hmm. not actually those 70 million millennials were not ever actually encouraged to be in solidarity with one another. No, right. The, there was the never really a push to tackle it as a group project. It was like it was you're more a group of project, a fear. all graded individually. <laughs> it was a fear that they could act in solidarity. Oh, absolutely. That yes, 
<laughs> if they form right? solidarity, that would be that would be the negative outcome, right? They're either going to be the next the greatest generation. Going back to millennials rising was like, yep. if these people all pull together, look out, and it's like, wait a minute, you've yes. been positive, 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 negative. <laughs> yes, yes. If they all individually strive to live up to our expectations, they're going to be the next greatest generation. If they band together to try to achieve progress, they will be the hordes that overran us. Right. And that's, that is like, <laughs> that's everything you need to know about, <laughs> about intergenerational warfare or whatever. <laughs> like it's, it's just about power elites versus everybody else all the, all the way down. Those are the turtles, power elites. And it's just like the, the, <laughs> the desire now for Gen Z to just recapitulate the same steps is so incredibly powerful. And it's just wild because I do feel like, and I mean, I would really want us to kind of look at this because I feel like we're, we are, I am seeing probably because the algorithm knows oh, what the, I'm the into. the boomerang now. of the same story. Yeah. The boomerang of that story. And then this weird aberration, which is Gen X. Like there was not an expectation that Gen X was going to change everything. No. There was not an expectation that they were going to be the next greatest generation. There were slackers and losers who were never going to amount to anything. And so what happened there? Like, why Why did that generation get to be, like, just dumped out the, the, the sluice of the expectations of young people? <laughs> like, what what happened? <laughs> and yeah. And then I think the other part of it is that piece from, oh, gosh, do I have that book up here? And so I can remember his name. Uh, Louis Menand, I think, writing in The New Yorker, wrote this piece about kind of the civil rights movement and that like young people actually didn't do that, <laughs> that that the people, that baby boomers were not at the forefront of the civil rights movement. They were the foot soldiers of it. The people who were leading it were older than that because, duh. Right. <laughs> Right. These 18 year olds don't know how to organize mass movements. They just don't. No. Yeah. And so you always have to have intergenerational solidarity to achieve change, but we don't want that either. And so let's keep telling this story about how young people are supposed to save us. And oh, when they didn't, they sold out or they failed or they are upending norms in whatever, some, some retrograde way instead of some pro- progressive way. Do you think, I mean, so we've, we've been talking really about sex and intimacy and we, we keep, I mean, I, for every topic, we're going to get into the, like, the power structure, no matter what, because America, but. <laughs> well, also because that's think, what narratives are. <laughs> narratives yeah. are about power. Always. But do you think, you know, the, the stories about millennials are delaying marriage and therefore they're pressing these norms and that affects home buying and that affects X, Y, the children and that affects, you know, the, the demographic outlook for the country or whatever the news stories are. Do you think millennial intimacy based on the conversations and research we've consumed, do you think millennial intimacy is fundamentally different from Gen X intimacy or what we think Gen Z intimacy will be? I don't. <laughs> and and I think like, you know, even the other day I saw a chart that I will try to scare up and maybe we can drop it in here somewhere. But the it was talking about home ownership by by age, by generational cohort. So like by age 40, what percentage of each generation owns a home? And millennials are a little bit behind Gen X. Gen X is a little bit behind boomers. Boomers are way behind silent generation. But we never talk about how boomers also were failing to live up to homeownership goals at the age of 40. Now, I bet if we rolled back to like 1985, 
maybe we could find some headlines about that. It might be interesting to go look and see if people were fretting about boomers' homeownership. Yeah, let me make a note. But like the kind of, you know, a quarter of them will never, you know, are not married at the age of 40. And yet, like, we also know that more people are getting married later in life. So is the objective marriage by 40? And if the objective is marriage by 40, why? And so if it's not, if it's just marriage, well, then just give them a minute. <laughs> you know, a whole bunch of people right. are going to get married in What's their late hurt? 40s and early 50s. It's going right. to be fine. And then we'll see it all sort of shake out in the wash. The final piece of it, though, it does come back to why are we anxious about their formation of marriages and their um, sexual norms and their gender norms. It's because we want things to look like what went before. That makes us feel happy and secure, and it helps people predict the future. If, if everything looks like it did before, then I know what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's a big part of it, is you want to be able to have some kind of I don't know. I, I don't know how long this has been going on. I don't know if this is just an inherent human characteristic, but it seems like, especially with the rise of technology and more data collection and censuses and surveys and all of this kind of stuff, there's way more desire to be able to predict the future, mm -hmm. which is just a thing you can't do. It'll look a lot like today, but not exactly like today. That's about the best you can say about the future of anything. And then there will be these massive leaps that you didn't see coming. But when you actually like pull up, pull up the rug, you can look under it and see like, oh, yeah, well, there were all these experiments that led up to this. And so it too was incremental. But like... But the human part doesn't change. <clears throat> no, but the human part doesn't really change that much. And, and so I think like, is there something fundamentally different about millennial intimacy? Not in the big juicy center. Around the edges, there's lots of interesting stuff going on. Yeah. Like there's lots of interesting inquiry about do relationships really need to be structured this way? Do I need to get married by this point in time? Do I need to have kids at this age? Do I need to have kids at all? Do I need to get married at all? You know, th there's all kinds of conversations around this. They're also not unique to millennials, though maybe there's incrementally more of them having those those kind of interrogative conversations, thinking about it instead of just doing what their parents did. But by and large, as a species, we do what our parents did. <laughs> like that's, especially when it comes to partnership. You know, and I got married intimacy. at 30. My parents got married at 20. My grandparents, I'm Gen X. My grandparents said, oh, why aren't you, know, I was 24, 25. Why aren't you marrying that girl? Like that's kind of normal for them to say the expectation is, you should be married by now because your mom was, or we were. And probably with my own kids, when they're 35 and not married, I'll say like, oh, you should be settling down. Right. <laughs> but we've, I don't think we've experienced it on mass with mass media covering it as like a threat to national security or the threat to the economy. <laughs> kind of a weird extrapolation. It is. And, and I think it probably says more about people's feelings about the structural soundness of our economic foundations than it does about marriage or intimacy or parenthood or any of the rest of the, or sex or any of the rest of that. I think the, the desire for more stability may be what's driving this kind of reactionary thing. It's totally. funny that you say that, though. I mean, my, my mother was 24, 25 when she got married. Um, my my dad yeah, my dad was <laughs> getting married for the second time at 28, 29. His parents, I don't know how old they were when they got married, but I know my mom's mom, first of all, my my mom's parents, her mother was the older of the two. And hmm. 
you know, maybe nearing 30 when, when they got married and had kids. I'd have to go back and check that. But I also had a great aunt who, very Southern, um, moved in with her sister after my dad was born to help out just visiting um, and stayed visiting for 60 years. But Aunt Annie, probably, if I had to guess, and I, I love her dearly, she has passed, but if I had to guess, I would say that Annie might was bi or possibly a lesbian. I don't know. Right. She was like perfectly happy to meet the man who is my husband now, thought he was great, also really strongly against marriage and uh, encouraged me never to have children, even though she yeah. really did a great job helping raise um, wow, yeah, she did as good as she could helping raise um, my dad and his siblings. She tried, but like for she, what she wanted for me was not tradition. <laughs> and this is a woman who, you know, was born in the I don't know 1910s, 1920s. So like, you know, it, this is the problem once again. There, there is no median anybody, and there is no median set of values and norms. And everybody has their own experiences and has their own reactions to that. My parents did not especially pressure me to settle down. They also mm-hmm. didn't really like any of my boyfriends. So that might have been why. That's got to be true. Too. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a great exploration. I think. Have we solved it? Have we figured it all out? Oh, yeah. And I think we have more work to do on yes. this, this topic and others. My diagnosis is this. Everything's fine. <laughs> could have saved we could have saved four episodes just like hey intimacy just quick check in it's a tweet Uh, everything's cool just move along nothing to see here it's fine keep doing what you're doing i agree i don't think it is a uh, moral panic that we need to twist our heads around i I think everything is fine so i agree with you (laughs) but yes we have we have more to do as ever as ever we have more to do i have no idea what we're talking about next uh Um, we'll figure it out but it's good. It's good just having a one-on-one. We haven't done this in a while. I know. I'm glad. I'm glad. It's always rewarding. <laughs> All, right. All right. You keep working on your beard. It's going to happen. It's going to look like a beard in six to eight years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have to get to my next one. All right. Good to see you. You too. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno with support from The Difference Engine and edited by Allison Preisinger and Amp Studio. Music by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information. Please rate and review the show. Someone once told us it helps.